0: Hey everyone and welcome back to Country Music Made Me. Thank you so much for joining us once again. As always, please make sure to like, share, follow, subscribe to us on whatever streaming service you are listening on. You can leave us a review, a rating, tell your friends, your family, your neighbors to come on over and have a listen. That support is huge. Today we're sitting down with Gary Morris. Now his career began back in the late 1960s and he was actually one of the original performers to record and release the single, Wind Beneath My Wings. Now, over the span of his career, he had 20 straight top 10 singles, including five number ones, and he has actually performed for every U.S. president up to Barack Obama. He actually got his start by performing for then-Governor Jimmy Carter during his campaigning events. It's been a really exciting career with many amazing stories and we had a great time chatting to Gary about all of it. So please enjoy our conversation with Gary Morris. I heard you mention in another interview that you were a member of Barton Creek. Now are you still a member there? Lifetime. And what is it like? I've I looked it up and Three championship courses and this whole thing going on. Have you played? Are you a golfer? Do you play golf there, or is it the yeah. other stuff that you take yeah. advantage of?
1: Daryl Royal was a coach at University of Texas, famous football coach, right? And, and a big fan of mine. So he invited me down. They used to have the uh, the Willie Nelson Daryl Royal golf tournament every year, and. So I went and played and uh, then sang. And then w- one time he he called and said, I mean, it's funny. You, you'd appreciate this. I'm in a hotel room. I've never met him to begin with. And, of course, I grew up in Texas. So Coach Royal was like royalty, literally. And <laughs> I got this phone call in my hotel room said, Gary, yeah, this is Coach Royal. I'm going, I'm thinking, how does he know where my hotel room is? I was playing big outdoor concert there. And he said, you want to go play golf? I went, yeah, sure. I was just, I'll pick you up in 10 minutes. So I went and played at Barton Creek. And then the next time I came, he did it again. And then I had a, a, a trip down and I got a call from him. He had my cell phone number. How he got it, I don't know. But he called me and said, hey, we want you to do like, with the Symphony, a show on the Green at Barton Creek. And uh, what we'll do is we'll give you a free lifetime membership at Barton Creek. So I went down and sang with a symphony, and make a long story short, I decided if I want to be a member, I want to find some land around here. and I bought a couple of hundred acres on, on uh, Lake Travis, which borders it, what then became Barton Creek at the Lake. And I kept it for nine years. All I did was put a teepee up on it. I'd go down to stay in the teepee and then go over to the men's club, take a shower. (laughs) And eventually, eventually, a guy came along, the CFO of Dell Computers, and offered me way too much money for it. And I sold it. And then I bought the place in Colorado after that. So that's my short version of Barton Creek. I'm still a lifetime member. Same thing with Ridgely Country Club in Fort Worth, uh, a lifetime member there.
0: I know you've talked about before that your career is sort of made up of these wow moments, like just like becoming a member of Barton Creek. It's not something you searched out. It's just something that sort of came to you. And that has been your entire career, basically.
1: You know, if I would love to tell you I had a plan and if if I ever had a plan, it was by back in college when I planned on playing professional. I thought I'd play professional baseball and I took a summer vacation to Colorado with a couple of boys that I grew up with one I grew up with and one that was already at Texas Tech. We went to Colorado to chase girls and play for a summer, get a construction job or something and I ended up playing music and At the end of the summer, I either had to go back, was going to go back to Texas Tech and play football. And I got no cartilage in my nose, this scar from football, 14 broken bones in my feet. Now I've had this shoulder replaced at both knees. At the end of the summer, it was either I was playing music. It's either play music and stay or go back and get beat up some more. So I I chose music, and the rest is what they say – not the most eventful history but
0: (laughs) and that music side of things although at that point you weren't focused on it it's something that had been a part of your life growing up correct because I know one of the first memories was a talent show that you and your (laughs) twin sister took part in and what grade were you in like grade three or four when that happened yeah
1: third grade and I got my first real lesson about the politics of music and should, I didn't understand it, but third graders aren't supposed to win. The sixth graders are. <laughs> and suddenly this third grader won the talent show. We're singing uh, an old country song. This old house wants to do my children. This old house wants to do my wife, And sitting on a bale of hay and my twin sister playing the piano and we won. And it wasn't the coolest reception from the older kids, you know? Right. So it's a good preparation for being in the music business, though.
0: Right, and so all the way along, even though music didn't really take hold until that trip to Colorado in college, it was something that was sort of with you from your yeah. youth.
1: Absolutely. I mean, Buddy Holly and Elvis, who came out in, you know, in the 50s, that was the first time music... Was really played anywhere that wasn't orchestrated. You know, the early TV shows, which were way before your time, Lawrence Welk, uh, Snooky Lanson and the Hit Parade, everything was orchestrated. All the movie scores were orchestrated. Everything was orchestrated. And then suddenly, had Buddy Holly come along, made his trip over to uh, Europe, and and everybody who's anybody from the british invasion all saw holly on that one like 28 day tour and suddenly there was a chance for people to make music with just guitars and just you know i mean it was a a a big change so it's always been with me i i bought my first guitar i was a I think a freshman in high school and what really got me thinking more about music was the Beatles. Right. Because suddenly there was these young kids who had a big following, but they had lyrics and melodies and I liked lyrics and melodies. I wasn't a Stones fan. I was a Beatles fan. I wanted more melodic things, which is pretty much shows up in the recording I've done as an artist, you know,
0: Yeah. And after singing in Colorado and sort of realizing that you could make money, all of a sudden that world opened up for you, right? And did you kind of have that realization that, oh, man, yeah, this could work?
1: It was, it it was really, if you look, I was 20 years old. It was a summer job and this, this guy at a club called Taylor Supper Club. There was a trio and we we went up and sang in front of the crowd, kind of an audition and the place erupted. I had hair as short as yours and no facial hair. And it was 1969, right in the middle of the hippie long hair Colorado uh, uh, reality. And we walked up on stage and sang Hank Williams and Glenn Campbell and you know, a 15 minute set. So he said, We walked off stage. He says, I'll give you each $100 a week. I want you to do two 15-minute sets. It was a place with continuous entertainment. Every week for 10 weeks, he gave us each $100 a week raise. At the end of 10 weeks, I was making $1,000 a week to go sing. And at the end of the summer, I had to decide whether to go back and play football at Texas Tech, or do music
0: pretty easy decision at that point if
1: it was besides, besides there were all the girls and, and all the trappings of Colorado I'm an avid outdoor guy I like to fly fish and hunt and so I mean you know I basically said I'm here I'm your guy
0: And we talk about the wow moments that happened in your career, sort of after that start in Colorado. One of the next wow moments was when you got picked up. I believe it was for then governor Jimmy Carter, when you got picked up to sort of follow him on his campaign trail and basically play shows to warm the crowds up during those stops. Correct?
1: Yeah, it was, it was really, that's absolutely true. And it was totally accidental. I'd gone back down to Fort Worth and I was playing at a uh, little Boilermakers in the afternoon, playing holiday ends and sit down stuff. And there were uh, the Fort Worth star telegram, which is a big paper, had some big spread that Lloyd Benson, who was a Senator was running for president and they were trying to keep this guy that I didn't know anything about, but the governor of Georgia off the ballot, he didn't get enough. Something turned in in time. And so I got in touch with the head of the Democratic Party just on a lark to say, Tell me what's going on. Uh, you know, I, I'm not a political guy, I've not done this, but this doesn't seem right. And she said, Well, you could go out and petition and then uh, get some names on petitions. Maybe you can get him on the ballot. So, and her name was Ann Merrick. And uh, So i went out my little trio that i had played with and we half a day did got names petitions turned them in i thought it was over and then about two weeks later i got a call from a guy named jody powell who ended up being his press secretary and he said we heard you did some work for the governor in texas i went well not really i did petitioning work he said we'd like to hear you sing because maybe when we come to Fort Worth or Dallas, you can open up and warm the crowd up. So they came and heard me sing a couple of songs. And he said, can you go to Asheville, North Carolina? And I said, well, what, when are you talking about? He said, this was a Monday. And he said, well, we need you there on Friday. It's the governor's first really big event in the stadium or the arena there at the college. So I had a, old Chevy van and I loaded it up, drove to Asheville, North Carolina, and we went on stage and I wrote, there's a piece of music called American Trilogy, which uh, Mickey Newberry put it together, Elvis sang it, you know, it's Dixie and all my trials. And I decided that I was going to sing that right before we brought the governor on stage, which I found out later really freaked out the Carter people because it was a mixed crowd of black and white people crammed with people. But it starts off with Slow Dixie. I wish I was in the land of cotton and, and I'm doing the whole thing. And I found out later how they were freaking out. But anyway, I wrote this recitation. Said, blah, 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 the next president of the United States, Jimmy Carter. And he walked out on stage, and the audience stood up and were screaming and hollering. And he walked over, and I still got a little bit of Dixie to sing. And he tries to sing it at the other mic. And I come off, and they say, Can you do the next 14 days? And I ended up playing Madison Square Garden. Playing, there was a thing called the Whistle Stop Tour that started in Chicago. The original Mayor Daly, you know, smoking cigars on the train and wheeling and dealing and then playing election night at the Omni and then playing uh, one of the inaugural balls and then coming back and playing CMA, CMA night. All of that because I, I called up the Democratic headquarters and said, What's this deal about the, the, the governor not being on about 80 or 90 performances? It was really fun.
0: You talk about CMA night at the White House, I believe it was. Yeah. And yeah. someone had seen you there and that inspired you to walk into, what was it then? Was it Warner? Music it was or? Warner Brothers. Right.
1: I was invited to CMA night. and it, it was Conway and Loretta and Tom P. Hall and James Dalley and uh, I, I, I them. Was just a whole wad of them. And they all played. Then we went in the East room and ate. Then the uh, president stands up and says, now we're going back in and we're going to have a little old fashioned guitar pool. I went back in and he walked up. And he said, now uh, I want y'all to hear my favorite singer. And I went, Oh my goodness. Is he going to call me up there? And he did, of course. And I went up and sang a couple of songs. After that, my phone started ringing when I got back and, uh, and MCA flew me out and I did four sides. And then they got a change of uh, management at MCA. Jimmy Bowen came in, started running and said, no new projects. So, they gave me, they told me I'll well, have a record contract in two weeks and to nothing. And at the time I had a band called Breakaway, we were playing and I tried to get them a record deal. And eventually I went back, long story short, when I went back, I called the guy that produced my very first, that little four song demo and said, who should I talk to? And he said, Noro Wilson at Warner Brothers. So I walked up to Warner Brothers told the receptionist, I like to see uh, Noro. and She said, do you have an appointment? And I said, no. She said, well, he's busy. I said, well, I'll wait. And I just went over and sat down. Now, you got to know now I had hair down to here, black and a long beard. And I was in, in overalls and work boots. I, I'm sure I looked like a worker on the street coming in. <laughs> I sat there for probably four hours. I didn't budge. Finally, he came out, walked in, says, you want to see me? And I said, are you Noro? He said, yeah. Do I know you? I went, I don't think so. He said, did you sing at the White House? I said, yeah, I did. And he put his arm around me and took me into to his office and said, what, you got something to play me? I had a little cassette of, that I'd done four songs on I'd written. And at the end of it, he called up Warner Brothers in L.A., said, I got a guy I want to sign. And I'm listening to this. He goes, no, no, no! I want him. I don't want anyone else to hear him. I want it. I want a commitment from y'all today. Then he looked at me. He says, "You have an attorney?" And I go, "No." And he goes, <laughs> "Yeah, he's got one." <laughs> okay, click. Congratulations! You're on Warner Brothers. Just like that. Then it was, uh, you know, a series of record label kind of things, you know, which I had to learn from scratch. I didn't well, have a manager.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, like, up to that point of not committing to music and just sort of doing these things that led to one another, when you got that record deal and you were in the business, was that a difficult thing to kind of get accustomed to and realizing that this was now your career?
1: Well, what was different was I now had, quote, experts around me. You know, uh, my my whole music career and even the band Breakway, I I wrote music for it. We were doing our thing. And now I had the guys that are supposed to know everything. What I found out, you know, in the long run is most of those people are building stupid. They don't know anything about what's going on out in the real world and only what they can focus on with their talks to radio programmers and so forth and Gary, you need to have a song, blah, blah, blah. I went, ah, I don't know. Um, and it was certainly different in Nashville than it would be in Los Angeles or New York. But, um, so I had to get a manager and I had to get a booking agent and I had to get all these things. And then I had to put together a band and, and then my band was so good. Um, One of my first records was uh, Velvet Chains, one of the first master sessions I did. I took my own band in, and the producers on that, I was a co-producer with with two other guys, and they were like freaked out. You're bringing your band in? Yeah. Well, my band at the time was a guy named Merle Brigani on drums, who did all of Loggins and Messina's records and toured with them. It was a guy named Al Garth on saxophone and fiddle did all of Loggins and stuff, toured with them. A guy named John Macy, steel guitar, did Michael Murphy, a bunch of guys. I mean, these were not guys that I, you know, picked up at a honky-tonk. They, and they all were, I just asked Paul Worley, who was a, a, one of the producers recently, because I, I was doing a podcast. I said, what'd you think when I brought my band in? You say we looked at him and went, oh, no. And after y'all, they started warming up and playing, he turned to Marshall Morgan, the engineer, and said, record this, because this isn't what we do, but get it down. So it was a battle most all of the time I was on Warner Brothers. It wasn't until I had a record called Plain Brown Rapper that I took my own band in, and I brought in three outside players, and we did the entire thing. We recorded the album and did all the vocals in one week, I think my recording costs were like $19,000.
0: <laughs> really?
1: And that's not really good if the big producers are spending $200,000 on records. So, and the record had two number ones on it. It's like, so, So, uh, being in Nashville and having control over my own kind of sound and career was where I was headed. And of course there were a couple of detours into New York that confused everybody, but <laughs> that's it was, it was pretty fun.
0: And so throughout your career, what has that push and pull been like in enjoying where you're at and doing the music? And not letting that business side get you down and wear you down and make you bitter to the whole process.
1: I, never, I, I would probably have to say I was pretty pissed off for a little period of time because I didn't understand it. And then I, I, I figured it out. I mean, basically, if, if you can go from a string of number ones to zero, I'm talking about zero airplays then there's other forces against you. That's when I started my TV show called The North American Sportsman, which is also a love of mine. I went, okay, well, if you're not going to do this, let me do that. And it ran for five years. And the last quarter that it was on, it was the number one show on the sports block. And I said, okay, I've done that. Now what am I going to (laughs) do? And so I now I go out solo. I take three guitars. They're t- different tunings, and um, and I continue to record. Have uh, you know the, the records are on my website, um, and it it's interesting because I go out and play, and I get so, I get requests for songs that were not hits, that were album cuts and stuff off my new records. So somebody's getting them somewhere. <laughs>
0: Yeah, your most recent album was 2018 and Sense of Pride. Now I've heard you talk about that's one of your most personal albums. And so what is it like in this point in your life to have that outlet, to have still have that songwriting where you can sort of pour that emotion out and put it on paper and and get it out of you in that way?
1: It's great. It's 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 great. And, and you know, I'm not at the point where I have to try to create music for a format. Now, the thing about the Sense of Pride album, which I did at the end of 2018, beginning of 2019, um, it's almost all acoustic. It's, uh, and it fits what I can go out and do. And it's, uh, there's every song but one on it I wrote. And so when I say it's the most personal, um there's a song on there called I'm in church and it's, I get a request for it every, every concert. And that means somebody out there has found it. And um, so it's cool. And if I didn't get a request for it at all, it wouldn't matter. I'm going to do it. It's the beginning of the second half of the show. And, um, but it, it's really an expression of uh, being an outdoor guy. Part of the reasons i've been up in your part of the world I, I i i was a keynote speaker in edmonton alberta for pope and young at their national convention pope and young being the archers uh you know right yeah so i've hunted and fished all over there and i'm in church is about being in nature and it's a really interesting. I mean, for me, a concept is that I'm not. I'm not saying it from a sacrilegious point of view. I'm just saying that um, you know, God is not in just bricks and mortar. I mean, when you walk outside, the, the the beauty of nature is there. Whether you're hunting or fishing or hiking or just sitting in the woods. So, so that song, and I wrote that. I wrote most of the lyrics before I was on my way to New Zealand and I wrote a second song down there with my buddy. We were, I was duck hunting. We came out of the duck blind. It was almost dark. And I said, I got this idea for a song. He said, what is, it? what is it? I said, it's, it's called paint me a river. He said, where does that come up? Where does that come from? I said, no, 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 no. not, not like, Paint me a river, I make make me a river is really what it is. Paint me a river and let it be me. And then paint me at sunrise, you know, let it be me. Let me enjoy all these things. So that creative spark sometimes happens in a duck blind. Some sometimes happens on the front porch. I just want to be available when it happens.
0: And you mentioned that where you are right now, you're working on some music. And so what does that look like right now? Where, what are you working on for the future?
1: Well, interestingly enough, I've had this song, and I've just now got a demo of it. It's, and it's a woman song. It's the first time I've really actually written a song for a woman to sing, and it's called I'm Not Eve." And, uh, it's the, the thing has been going around in my head and I've been, I've been messing around with it for probably at least six months. And it started with a certain chord and it's the first song I've ever written on a piano. I've written everything else with the guitar, but I sit down at my piano and I started playing this chord progression and this popped in my head. I've just got, in fact, before this, this podcast, I've, Put a call into Paul Worley, guitar player who co produced on my first record. And I want to send it to him and say, I got to hear you playing guitar on this. But uh, so that I have probably 20 other new songs that nobody's heard that I've even written or co written. And then it's a matter of paring it down and finding a time and how do I want to record them.
0: And throughout this whole journey that we talked about, is it. Easy to sort of sit back and sort of reminisce on it and be sort of amazed what you've been able to accomplish? Or are you just sort of always looking to the next thing and just keeping things moving forward?
1: That's a great question. Uh, I just got asked, you said, you know, you have to write your story. You have to write your story because it doesn't matter who's talking about what it seems like i have a story for it you know i mean i you know i've been to the amazon fishing and i've been to africa and and i've looked at i've had a leopard up in a tree and i've it's done all this stuff and we'll be talking and it doesn't matter something about niagara falls oh yeah we did this thing up there i was in buffalo new york i've been in every state so part of what i'm doing right now in fact i'm i'll be making a drive back to my place is, and I'm taking a friend back from here in Nashville who really just wants to clear her head but she used to work for me years ago and we're starting my story my book whatever it is and it and it's I mean you have a you have a an outline of a lot of it but there's just so many personal things Along the way, people that are, were influenced me that that as I start kind of reminiscing over it, I go, wow. Merle Haggard opened for me up in your country.
0: Oh, really? An
1: outdoor event with 10,000 people there. And I was really pissed off. I went, this, this is not right. I, I was a Merle Haggard fan way before I started making music. But here's the deal. I had three or four number ones in a row and country radio wasn't playing Merle. Right. And it, it was up in British Columbia and it was an outdoor festival and Merle opened. He was there. He went on while it was still daylight and I came on under the lights. And uh, so, I mean, there, you can hardly talk about all of the things, like singing amazing grace with George Jones. Closing a Night. I, did, I never sang with Paul or Ringo or any of those guys, but I've sung with all of the all of the best of the biggest of country that are around, George Murrow, Kenny, Dolly, the, the list goes on. Of course, did an album with, with Crystal, sang with Loretta, Tammy. And I didn't realize really that that was special. It was just like, well, we're doing this, you know? Right, let's yeah. Let's, let's sing it. Did a duet with Lynn Anderson. And, you know, then the history of Lynn Anderson and her family. And, and <clears throat> you know, it's like, I, and I just thought about it. It was just like, that'll be fun. Let's do it. See how it turns out. It's kind of been my attitude all along. My mom told me, I've probably worn this story out, she talked talked to me about, about uh, like training fleas. I mean, this is gonna sound a little strange, but training <laughs> fleas for and they, they put them in what we call Mexican jumping beans, and you have they, they you know they'll heat them up at sideshows at a carnival. And she said, the way they train them is they put them in a jar and they screw a lid on it. This this flea will jump, 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 jump. You know, and it will stop just a little bit short of the lid after a while. then you can take the lid off, it'll never go any higher. And then my mom said, don't let it. Don't ever let anyone put a lid on you. And it just stuck, you know, out of all the things that stuck. So when they said, you shouldn't do La Boheme, I didn't really want to, but L.A. wanted me to. When you said you shouldn't do Jean Valjean, I went it's the number one show on Broadway. It's the lead role. How can that hurt me? Well, maybe not one of them, but hooray for them. It's like, <laughs> great. There's new guys. There, there has to be old guys, you know, until we go.
0: And do you ever look back at your first trip to Colorado and ever think, what would life be like if I had returned to play ball?
1: I had a few times. And people ask me, would you change anything? And I'll go, no, because I'm really happy where I am. And I make one change. I decide I don't want to go to Colorado with those two boys. I decide I don't want to go to New Zealand and do a TV show. And one of my best friends on the planet is from New Zealand now and came back and worked with me on the road and he married a girl, has one of his children, was born here in America, has dual citizenship. One change. Yeah, I don't want to go to New Zealand and do that. I don't want no. I, and everything has brought me to a really wonderful place. my My life is really good. Uh, I have plenty of work. I'd love to come up and play more up in your area. Maybe we'll work that out sometime.' I, I've, I'm really a big fan of British Columbia
0: that's awesome it feels like especially in your life you know people often say things happen for a reason and it feels like your life is a whole string of it happened for a reason
1: I have a real rare disease in my mother's family Uh, it's called ataxia and uh, all of my Nephews and cousins and aunts and uncles on my mother's side died of ataxia. My mother's sister died in our house. She was in her late forties. I didn't get it. My mom didn't get it. My mom is the only one of the kids in her family that didn't get it. So the chain was broken. So for eight years, I was a spokesperson for the National Ataxia Foundation. But I only say that to say, there was a reason why my mom didn't get it and my Oh, my cousins are died early. And uh, I, 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 it, there was times when I carried that as a weight, like I, I'm supposed to do what I'm supposed to do. And uh, let's just see how it goes. There was a reason my twin sister and I and my younger brother never had to deal with it, but I was brought up like I might have to. It's pretty strict, pretty strict youth. So, But it saved me a lot of problems along the way.
0: It's been a treat learning about your journey. You've done so much, accomplished so much. And like I say, I hope you do get the chance to sort of look back as you're writing your book or your memoirs or whatever it turns out to be and sort of realize how special it was. Because I know it can just sort of seem to you probably like it's your life and it's just what happened, but it is very special. And I thank you so much for joining us and telling us all about it.
1: It was my pleasure. And thanks for having me on your show.
0: Thank you once again so much for listening and thank you to Gary for stopping by and sharing his story. Be sure to check out his latest album, Sense of Pride, wherever you stream your music. Please also be sure to like, share, follow, subscribe to us wherever you're listening. Leave us a review, a rating, tell your friends, your family, your neighbors to come on over and have a listen. That support is huge. Thank you once again for listening and we'll see you next time on Country Music Made Me.